You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. Allegations of war crimes and Russian disinformation involving chemical, biological, and radiological weapons. Cyber operations against Russia. GPS interference reported along Finland's border. Conti and its users are still up and active. CISA releases 24 ICS security advisories. Malek Ben Salam from Accenture on deception systems. Our guest is Joe Payne from Code 42 on data exposure. And an extradition in the Netwalker case. the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, March 11th, 2022. Ministerial level talks between Russia and Ukraine this week have made little progress. Russia's talking to Ukraine, something it had said it wouldn't do until Ukraine laid down its arms. But it hasn't backed off from what amounts to a demand for surrender. Euronews quotes Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov in a way that suggests how far the Russian view of the situation diverges from what most of the rest of the world regards as reality. Quote, We do not plan to attack other countries. We did not attack Ukraine either. However, we just explained to Ukraine repeatedly that a situation posed direct security threats to the Russian Federation. The incident that's attracted considerable attention is the destruction of a maternity hospital in Maripol, apparently by Russian airstrikes. An op-ed in CNN asks, If bombing a children's hospital isn't crossing a red line, what is? And the sentiment it expressed well represents international revulsion the attack has provoked. Russia's response to the general outrage has been instructive. The Kremlin has claimed, first, that the attack never happened, second, that the hospital wasn't actually a hospital but rather a Nazi headquarters, and third, that the attack was committed by Ukrainian forces in an attempt to embarrass Russia, which is running a clean military operation. It's not a war, and it's not, as Foreign Minister Lavrov insisted during talks in Turkey, an invasion either and complaints of atrocities are just pathetic shrieks from Russia's enemies. Russian disinformation now seems to be playing to a largely domestic audience. It remains to be seen whether it will continue to enjoy success even there. Panelists on a recent Russian talk show had to be brought to heel by the host, The Telegraph reports, for calling the situation in Ukraine worse than Afghanistan, that is, worse for the Russian soldiers. Wired's take on the failure of Russian influence operations abroad 
is that the invasion of Ukraine was simply too obvious to be obfuscated and the positive lies told to justify it were too implausible to find any takers beyond a hard core of the already convinced. Facebook has invoked an ongoing conflict exception to its ban on violent speech, The Verge reports. Meta spokesperson Andy Stone told The Verge, quote, As a result of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we have temporarily made allowances for forms of political expression that would normally violate our rules, like violent speech, such as death to the Russian invaders. We still won't allow credible calls for violence against Russian civilians. End quote. Russia has denounced Facebook's corporate parent, Meta, for extremism. Russian sources continue to push the story that Ukraine had prepared stockpiles of chemical and biological weapons, or at least that it was working on acquiring them. The U.S. has called such claims preposterous, as indeed they are, and has taken China to task for amplifying them. Foreign Policy reviews this particular disinformation campaign, which many observers view as setting the stage for Russian use of prohibited weapons. Russian use of chemical weapons is regarded as more likely than either nuclear or biological strikes. In a grisly story that should be received with caution, The Telegraph reports that Russian forces are stockpiling the dead bodies of Ukrainian soldiers killed in action to use in staging some sort of provocation at Chernobyl. Security Scorecard has an account of the distributed denial-of-service attacks various Ukrainian assets have sustained. They identify three distinct DDoS attacks, but say that the attacks appeared to have had a minimal temporary impact on their targets. Government websites and banking services were quickly restored, and customers' balances were not affected. Krebs on Security reports a significant increase in attacks against Ukrainian citizens, mostly phishing attempts, but these are still falling short of the widely anticipated destructive or disruptive attacks Russia had shown itself capable of. Anonymous claims to have successfully gained access to internal files of Roskan Manzor and has leaked 820 gigabytes of data taken from Russia's Information Governance Agency. The files pertain, for the most part, to disinformation and censorship operations. The International Business Times says that the leaks deal primarily with Roskom Nadzor's efforts to keep people from calling Russia's invasion of Ukraine an invasion. Russian defense firm Rostec has, according to Bleeping Computer, shut down its website after sustaining a distributed denial-of-service attack. Finland's Transport and Communications Agency, Trafficom, reports observing unusual interference with GPS signals near the country's eastern border, Bleeping Computer writes. The source of the interference is unknown, but Russia has a record of GPS interference and shares a border with Finland. The Conti ransomware gang hasn't, it appears, been significantly impeded by the recent doxing it received at the hands of a Ukrainian researcher who infiltrated its chats. The U.S. government updated its Conti alert on Wednesday, and researchers at Abnormal Security have reported finding Conti's gangland parent Wizard Spider using website contact forms to distribute bizarre loader to their targets. Contact forms represent an alternative to the more customary emails. The U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency released 24 industrial control system advisories yesterday. See our daily news briefing on our website for details of the affected systems.
CBC reports that Sebastien Vachon Desjardins, formerly a Canadian civil servant, has been extradited to the U.S. to face charges in connection with NetWalker ransomware. The U.S. Justice Department says the indictment charges him with conspiracy to commit computer fraud and wire fraud, intentional damage to a protected computer, and transmitting a demand in relation to damaging a protected computer arising from his alleged participation in a sophisticated form of ransomware known as NetWalker. NetWalker ransomware has targeted dozens of victims all over the world, including companies, municipalities, hospitals, law enforcement, emergency services, school districts, colleges, and universities. Attacks have specifically targeted the healthcare sector during the COVID-19 pandemic, taking advantage of the global crisis to extort victims. The alleged perpetrator is, of course, presumed innocent of the U.S. charges until such time as he may be convicted at trial. Not so up north of the border, where he already copped a plea to mischief in relation to computer data, extortion, and participating in a criminal organization. He was granted a seven-year sabbatical in a Canadian correctional institution. Now the Yankees get their crack at it. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. Insider risk security firm Code42 recently released the latest edition of their annual data exposure report, highlighting risks organizations face with cloud technologies and insider risks. Joe Payne is president and CEO at Code42. In our survey, 98% of those surveyed are concerned with the increased levels of turnover, and rightly so, because the data also shows that when an employee quits, there's a one in three chance, or a 37% chance to be specific, that the company loses important intellectual property. Now, 60% of employees admit that they took data from their last job to help them in their current job. And our survey, that 37% number, is, shows that that data is actually really important information for a company. So while employees are taking data and emitting data, the other thing that our survey shows is that 71% of, of respondents said they don't know what and or how much sensitive data departing employees take with them to other companies. 
So you've got this huge migration of people leaving companies. They tend to stay in the same industry. They take critical information. And our cybersecurity industry really hasn't responded yet with the tools and the technology to protect companies from that. So what are organizations to do to, to have better control over this? Well, there's, there's a category of software that's emerging called insider risk management. And it's really more than software. It's a category around how do we build a program to help our employees think about data differently. And it starts with what we call the three T's. Uh, so the first is transparency. The first thing is the cybersecurity team needs to actually inform the organization, hey, these are things we care about. We are watching the store. We are looking for people that are exfiltrating data, particularly as they leave an organization. So being transparent is super important. And it's it, it, that sounds kind of obvious, except it's not for cybersecurity people. Cybersecurity people are used to not letting their adversaries know their methods and practices. And in this case, it's the one area in cyber where you really want to you wanna, uh, let your quote unquote adversary, because your adversaries are actually your teammates and your employees know exactly what you're doing. The second T is training. Training means explaining to the organization and to employees, both upfront and then in real time when they make mistakes, you know, what they're allowed to do with data and how they're allowed to take it. So when an employee moves something to their Gmail account and emails it to themselves, or they move it to their Gmail account to email to a colleague because maybe they couldn't get into the mail system on the weekend and so they just sent it from their Gmail. We need to immediately educate them and train them, hey, that we don't use Gmail for corporate data. Because you know, once a, a file gets into a Gmail, you know, that user has that forever. Likewise, we don't use Dropbox. We might use OneDrive or Box or G Drive for corporate purposes, but we're not going to use Dropbox. So that training is super critical. It even includes new employees. When you join our organization, we do not want you to bring data from your prior job. So it starts literally when people come into your, your organization. And then the last T of the three T's is technology. You really need technology that watches sort of the modern way that employees exfiltrate data. And um, that technology looks for things that are moving through cloud, things that move through airdrop, but it watches that, that employee data movement through the lens of allowing it to happen. And the reason this modern technology takes this approach is security teams cannot get in the way of collaboration. And we are using all these cloud-based collaboration tools to work remotely, to work more efficiently, to be better at our jobs. And the security team cannot get in the way of that. The new way of doing this in technology is to watch it, to score behavior, and then to course correct employees as necessary. But it's not to block all the use of cloud or block the use of collaboration tools. So those mm. are the three T's, transparency, training, and technology that you need for an insider risk program. That's Joe Payne from Code42. There's a lot more to this conversation. If you want to hear more, head on over to CyberWire Pro and sign up for Interview Selects, where you get access to this and many more extended interviews. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? 
With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Malek Ben-Salem. She is the Technology Research Director for Security at Accenture. Uh, Malek, it's always great to have you back. You and I spoke recently about uh, this notion of deception systems, and I wanted to dig in and uh, get a few more details about that. Yeah, uh, so I think there are uh, some considerations to think about when deploying these uh, deception systems to gather more information about how attackers behave. First, these systems have to be designed with three principles in mind. The first one is believability, or if you will, fidelity to a real-world system. These systems are much more believable if they are very similar, if they look similar to a real production environment. So that notion of fidelity uh, or believability is important. Um, The second principle is isolation. Uh, you want these systems to some extent isolated from real world ex- uh, systems. And, and I can explain why I'm saying to some extent and not fully isolated. Mm. Uh, but I think that that's an important um, distinction. And then the third principle is cost. Uh, obviously, you know, you don't want to mimic your full or to um, double your infrastructure, right? You want to deploy. Infrastructure that is realistic, but you don't want to double your costs. So I think cost is also uh, another aspect when designing these uh, deception systems. Well, let's dig into some of the details of that. I mean, what you, you mentioned uh, you're not having it completely separated from the real system. Well, why is that? So defining the isolation boundaries is is very important. In some extent, obviously, you don't want to. Um, this boundary to be permeable between your real system uh, and this deception system. But you want these systems to to be discoverable. Uh, you want to tie them to some extent to your company or to your organization so that they're discoverable, so that the adversary coming after you can can discover them. But you don't want to put them out there on the internet without any connection to you, without any connection to anything else. You don't want to deploy them inside your environment totally so that, you know, you only detect the attack when the attacker is within your environment. You want to deploy them, you know, juxtapose them, if you will, (laughs) or deploy them adjacently to your environment and have them be discovered. And one way to have them be discovered is to direct some of the real traffic coming to your real world system to this deception system. 
So that's one way of reducing your costs, right? You don't have to generate, you, you know, you make them discoverable, you have them have some real world traffic while they're isolated from your environment, but not fully isolated. So there's that connection where you can direct some of the traffic to them. And, and actually one clever way of doing this in a secure manner is, uh, through something called honey patching, right? Where you, you patch, you make sure that all the patches are deployed within your real environment, right? For known vulnerabilities, but that it, you know, the, the patches are not deployed within the deception environment. And then the traffic that's coming to your patch environment can be redirected to that deception environment. Um, and, you know, the attacker can, can um, take advantage of that vulnerability, exploit that vulnerability in the deception environment, and you can start collecting information about how the attacker is behaving within that environment. How do you go about funneling the attackers to the appropriate environment? So that's where those, um, you know, techniques we talked about in the previous um, segment we had, like software-defined networking would help, right? You can direct that traffic to the new environment through those techniques, through the proper network segmentation. So you're relying on the, the fact that you can detect that they are someone who is up to no good and send them where you want them to go? No, you're not necessarily detecting that upfront. Mm. You're just deciding that, uh, you know, perhaps some of the traffic should go here. I mean, mm. you can make some assumptions if traffic is coming from certain IP addresses, for instance, you, that are more suspicious, then you may want to do that. But it's not, uh, it's not 100%, uh, you know, valid assumption. I see. How do you balance the, the risk reward here? I mean, I could imagine some, some people... Uh, you know, hearing this and saying, you know, that, that sounds risky to me, Malek. Uh, you know, uh, it, it, uh, cross-pollinating this traffic. Uh, what, what's your response to that? This is assuming that your real deployment is secure, right? That you have the right defenses or defense layers deployed in, in your real environment. So that is secure. But this other environment that is not secure is only there for the purpose of gathering more information about the attacker and how, uh, how they are behaving. All right. Well, Malik Ben Salem, thanks for joining us. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. Be sure to check out this weekend's edition of Research Saturday and my conversation with John DiMaggio from Analyst One. We're discussing their research report that chronicles the rise and fall of our evil. That's Research Saturday. Check it out. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week.
Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily, and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.